0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message.
1: Today is the second sunday at advent the season of eager but patient waiting for the messiah to come we look back to his first coming but even more we look ahead to his second only by experiencing this longing and anticipation can we understand what the old testament saints knew as they looked forward to the messiah's coming every prophet of old was a type and a shadow of the chief prophet of jesus the chief prophet jesus as our chief prophet jesus reveals to us through the Holy Spirit and through the scriptures, the great salvation that he makes real for us. Hear these words of comfort from Isaiah 61, which Jesus declared fulfilled in himself. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn
0: God of timeless grace, you fill us with joyful expectation. Make us ready for the message that prepares the way, that with a brightness of heart and holy joy, we may eagerly await the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit now and forever. God of hope, you raised up John the baptizer as a herald who calls us to conversion. As we joyfully await the glorious coming of Christ, we pray to you for the needs of the church and the world. Hear our humble prayer that we may serve you in holiness and faith, and give voice to your presence among us until the day of the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Good morning. Everybody is doing okay. Kiddos, if you would like, Uh, do we have EGC? We just have Elevate this morning. Is that right? Okay. So, Barrett, Mr. Barrett is heading back there for Elevate for all the kids that would like to go and entertain him for a little bit. I know he would welcome that. And it's already started. All right. I am. Uh, I'm actually going to read the passage this morning uh, for you. I also want to add. Are we? We're also doing. Are we doing stuffed animals, Susan, for Frontier? So if people want to get cards and/or some stuffed animals, if you find a good deal, like if find a good deal on stuffed animals, uh, and last year we gave out stuffed animals to a lot of the residents there at Frontier, and man, they loved them, and they'll come to bingo with their stuffed animal every week. Some of them have like like a whole room full of stuffed animals. But some of them, like, this is company. This is somebody to talk to. So um, let's do that, uh, pick some up, bring it uh, by Wednesday, and, and that'd be great. Uh, all right, so what I want to do this morning is I want to read, and I want this, uh, this image um, to, to kind of stick in your mind here uh, as I read a passage written at the end of David's life, his reflection. He says this in 2 Samuel 23, The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And that grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. All right, this week we're going to continue on in our Advent series, um, Wait and Remember. And I'm going to get myself a little bit more space up here. Uh, I got to preach for a friend uh, last week at uh, Calvary Bible Chapel over in Florissant. And I joked with, my, the, with the pastor there uh, that, um, that the guy that was preaching here was from Florissant. So we like crossed uh, paths uh, as we drove past each other on the Blanchett Bridge Gave a little nod and wave and swapped tasks uh, and communities for that Sunday, but uh, I was grateful uh, to know that refuge is always in good hands uh, as we started the Advent season. And this year, uh, we're going to continue on. And last week in our GC, in our small group, one of the things we talked about was how many of us uh, did not grow up with the liturgical calendar. It's actually kind of a new phenomenon in the uh, the Protestant church um, where uh, we're, we're taking on a lot of the liturgy of the calendar of the church of the church year uh, and the church year the church calendar the liturgical calendar liturg- uh, liturgy is simply repetition that was given so that before we had uh, Bibles um, and before we had uh, when cell phones were still dial up I don't think cell phones were ever dial up um, but uh like. We didn't have a printing press. We didn't have the Bible in front of us that we could check things. Uh, and so what the church did was the church gave a liturgical calendar to make sure that they were going through the story of Scripture every year. And that's the design of, of the church calendar, to make sure that the people of God, that the church together, that we are celebrating and reading from all the facets of Scripture uh, and going through that every year. And Advent is the first season of, of the church calendar, uh, and, um, and it's, it celebrates kind of the Old Testament anticipation of the coming of Jesus, to re-enter that. Uh, I did not grow up really with Advent, our church or our family. Uh, we didn't really talk about Advent. We talked about Jesus. We talked about the birth of Jesus. Um, but I grew up with Christmas lights going up after Thanksgiving, uh, which I know is weird, um, and, and then the Christmas tree was like mid-December. Uh, we, one year, one year we attempted a live uh, Christmas tree, and, uh, and me and my dad got into a bit of a discussion, passionate, passionate discussion under the tree with a saw uh, on who had a better angle and who could do it better, um, and that was the last year that the Griswold family went and got our own Christmas tree. We just put up the old one that we had, And it usually had the, I don't know if anybody else grew up like this, where you had the strand of garland that was totally pressed completely flat because it had been just really just hammered into storage um, for the year. And so you pull it out in this garland that's just completely flat. Um, And then, uh, you know, in the Christmas season was more about trying to find parking spots at the mall. Um, I loved everything about Christmas. I still do. We had uh, our—I remember our house had the big blue lights, where if one light went out, it didn't make the whole strand go out. Uh, it, you just replaced a bulb, right? And um, and and my dad and my sister and I—we would we would put the tree up together, and we would always we would always have the record player. This is really dating a whole lot of stuff here. We'd always have the record player. My sister and I would listen to uh, the Sesame Street record album um, with the rap about the night before Christmas that I still have memorized to this day. And I will not do it. I will not do it. Ask me in private and I will, uh, I will go through the whole thing. Um, and, and we would put that up and we'd decorate the tree. And we had color lights on our tree. They were multiple colors. They didn't blink. They didn't chase. They didn't... Like go along to music, that wasn't even a thing that we thought was possible back then. Um, and it went right in front of the picture window. And then we had a love seat that was just a couple feet away from the tree. And I remember I would go in in the evening and I would just sit. And I, would, I could stare at the tree for hours. And it, it just, there was, a, there was a feeling. There was a, um, I would get kind of a pit in my stomach. I, even as a kid, I was a high feeler. Um, so get over it. Uh, and I would just sit in front of that tree for hours, and I'd feel it wasn't a bad pit. It was like, it was like just a longing. Uh, and I'm sure so much of it was like nostalgic and uh, excited for gifts and all of that stuff. And listen, I am, I I got out of this phase, all right? I I, I am now middle-aged, restless, reformed. Um, and, and like, I got out of the phage where like just doing away with nostalgia. Nostalgia is okay, all right. As long as we keep nostalgia in its place, I think it's okay. So if you are in Christmas time, you're like, I love the nostalgia. It's all right. It's all right. Um, this is this is the one time of year that you can stare at the uh, what's the guy that the painter of light, Kincaid. Uh, this is the only time of year you can like get into Thomas Kincaid paintings and like all the whatever Americana. Anyway. Um, and, but there was just this deep longing, and I didn't know fully what it was as a kid, but there was just a lot of eager anticipation, and that, in its fullness, uh, that's Advent. It simply means coming or appearing. It's the season where we as a church, we go back into the Old Testament where they were anticipating the coming of this Messiah and this King And we remember what it must have been like to wait eagerly for his his coming, even as we now wait for his return. Christ has come, uh, but the world is still not fully as it should be, and nor is it as, as it one day will be. We have this promise, we have this hope of Christmas, of the incarnation, that Christ has come. But we also live in a world where it's not quite fulfilled. The already but not yet. So, the church calendar, when it starts, does not jump straight into Christmas. It doesn't doesn't just start there, which I think has wisdom. We remember that we're still waiting for the fullness of time. So, if anybody else is like me, when you walk through the Christmas season and you still feel there's that just pit, that longing, Maybe the sadness or the loneliness, uh, when it just hits, it's okay. Advent is for the lonely. It is for the hurting. It is a time that we remember that we are still waiting for that one day, but we wait with confidence. And here's why I think this is important. Uh, Culturally, we're in a consumer-driven world. Um, We just want to get to the good stuff. We don't like to wait in lines. I mean, like, even the DMV now has, has reservations, so you don't have to wait in line there. Uh, our work, oftentimes, is something just to get done so we can have more free time, so we can enjoy life, live it to the fullest. We may live vacation to vacation, free time to free time, weekend to weekend, happy hour to happy hour. And what we see in Scripture is that it's not always about getting the work done so that then we can enjoy life. Sometimes we need the work and the waiting to actually get us done to do the work on us so this morning's actually going to look a little different i'm going to walk through the story of king david it's in the it's in the books of first and second samuel uh, which i love you may not and that's okay i love the story of first and second samuel the recording of of the kingship of uh, israel appointing a king and king david's life uh, the beginning to the end, uh, and I I find it incredibly fascinating. So I want to give three snapshots from his life, uh, the beginning of his life, the middle of his life, and the end. And it's a story of humility and power and corruption and repentance with the hope of a truer and better king. And uh, our world tends to honor and hold high those in the lineage of King Saul. But Jesus would come from the household of King David, and that's good news. So here's our outline for this morning that we're going to walk through the formation of a king, the corruption of power, and the hope filled grief of life. You ready for that? Okay. So take a breath. Let's start with the formation of a king. All of this through the lens of weight. And remember. So 1 Samuel 13 starts off. Uh, we're going to start in the middle of a conflict here. Samuel, who's the, the high priest, says to Saul, uh, who is the first king of Israel, You have done foolishly. You have not com- uh, kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. All right, there's a whole story behind this, but Saul, basically, he's the first king of Israel. He's tall, he's rich, he's good looking. He should be king, right? Seems legit. And the people elect him king. God gave him the gifts and the anointing to be king. And things were actually going pretty well. And here's what Samuel did. Samuel is waiting to make a sacrifice so he can go into battle. Uh, Sorry, uh, Saul is waiting to make a sacrifice so he can go into battle. Samuel, the high priest, this is a sacrifice only he can make. So Saul kind of rushes it a little bit and he's like, you know what? I'm just going to take care of it. And Saul makes the sacrifice. doesn't seem like that big of a deal, does it? Is that really something that Saul would lose his whole kingship over? Just one little bad decision? Wait till you hear what David does. This was the first king of Israel, and his heart had already become consumed with impatience, with getting things done, taking shortcuts, and all of that would just keep coming as Saul went along. So God sends Samuel, the high priest, to anoint a new king. And this is going to be one of Jesse's sons. And it's not going to be the oldest and the strongest, the typical heroes of the story, uh, the, the, the sons who would inherit Jesse's, uh, uh, all of his wealth and land. It wouldn't be the oldest, but it would be the youngest. And the youngest was assigned to shepherding. Shepherding Jesus uh, Jesse's flocks. Now shepherding. If you've ever uh, if if you've ever learned or studied or known about shepherding, it's a pretty lonely occupation. You are out in the middle of nowhere with animals that, by and large, just kind of sit there. So you have time. You have time on your hands. Um, shepherds were usually socially awkward. They were a little bit dirty and smelly. And for David, this time out in the fields, out in the middle of nowhere, it's not actually, it's not wasted time. It's formational. David wrote a lot of the psalms and songs while he's out in the wilderness tending to sheep. David's work might largely seem monotonous and boring. He's watching sheep all day. And yet, he has the vision to see God in that role to see God as a shepherd. So his monotony is turned glorious. Out in the middle of nowhere, he sees God as the creator, the one who could design beauty of the landscape and the stars. And he shares often his wonder and awe through the Psalms that such a magnificent God would care about the seemingly small and insignificance of mankind. Now, Samuel pronounces David. They have to wait for David to come in from the fields. And Samuel pronounces uh, God's anointing on him. And David doesn't just immediately become king. Uh, He's still a kid, but his job changes. He doesn't get to go into battle with his older brothers, but he does get to run errands and bring him food. And he's kind of well-known around the barracks. In fact, he's well-known by the king, King Saul. David had a talent. He could play the harp and he could sing. And so Saul would keep him close, the king would, and have him sing songs, especially in times of distress. David had a tremendous faith in this awe and wonderful God that he built out in the fields, out in the middle of nowhere, a faith that would be remarkably put to the test when he was sent out to battle this huge Philistine that I can't remember how many cubits high the Philistine was, uh, but Goliath basically was eight foot tall. He's a big dude. And obviously the famous story where David just with sheer remarkable faith walks out in the middle of the field and defeats the giant. And he was probably between 13 and 15 when he did that. David would become a warrior, and chance would start to grow up from the people. Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. David's faith would be strengthened even more in these battles, and Saul's would be exposed. King Saul Saul was actually a good leader. It's easy for us to be like, ah, he wasn't doing it. He was a good leader. He unified Israel. He had great military victories. He brought the nation together. But like many good leaders, when the light began to show on someone younger and stronger... Saul became less fixated on God's glory and more fixated on his own. Saul's insecurity would pit him against David almost constantly. In fact, he would try on multiple occasions to kill David. He threw spears at David on more than one occasion. That's a good indication that he's not for you. And what did David do when Saul threw a spear at him? What did what did people if you're part of the rebellion, what do you want David to do? What do you hope David would do? What is David justified to do when somebody throws a spear at him? David would have been justified, nay, lauded to pick up that spear and throw it back. That's what people wanted, but that's not what David did. David waited. David dodged the spears and trusted God with the life of the king. He waited and he remembered. The first snapshot around the scene, is around the scene where David spares Saul's life. This actually happens a few times where David has the opportunity to take Saul's life, to kill the king and rise up and take his rightful place on the throne they're in, this, uh, they're in these caves in this wilderness area called Wild Goat Rocks. I think it's down in southeast Missouri. <laughs> David and his men were hiding in a cave. Saul had brought 3,000 men to look through the wilderness. It's not in southeast Missouri. I feel like I have to say that. Uh, um, that we're told. That we're told. All right. All uh, right. But Saul brings 3,000 men to look for David, and David and his men are hiding in the cave. And I'm sure you've heard this story. Saul goes into the cave to uh, take a bathroom break and does not even realize that David is there. 1 Samuel 24 says this, And the men of David said to David, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my king, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way, really none the wiser. David's preparation to be king was filled with a belief and trust that God would establish him as king when God would make that happen. That it was not something for David to take into his own discernment and his own judgment. David was not going to manufacture it, he was not going to build alliances, he was not going to work against Saul. In fact, David loved and honored Saul the whole time. David's heart was being shaped in his waiting, and he refused over and over again to take it into his own hands. David resisted becoming like King Saul. In our world, we're often measured and evaluated by results, right? Growth, productivity. We're often measured by external results. How do you know a church is working and moving? Big buildings, big crowds, lots of stuff going on. How do you know a company is good? Makes lots of money. Right? How do you know a family is doing well? They got a big house. We're often measured by External results. The ends justify the means. The results of King Saul, the external results of King Saul are actually pretty good. And what do you think about the external results of King David? I mean, like, he had his chance. God delivered Saul into his hands. So is he a coward? Coward? Is he really fit for leadership? Would any leadership book in our day tell you when you have the opportunity to take it, don't? Would we ever look at David and go, that's what a successful king looks like? Probably not. David feared the Lord, and because of that, he feared the Lord's anointed. David believed God. He believed that God had anointed him king, but he also believed that God anointed Saul as king. And it would be God's job to remove Saul when God was ready. Sometimes, this is hard, sometimes we can be so sure that the person over us or the person in charge that they are of the lineage of King Saul. We can be so certain, and it is our job, our responsibility, to take them down, to lead the charge. How are we supposed to know if someone is from the lineage of King Saul or if somebody is from the lineage of King David? We don't. God does, God is fit to judge the human heart, and if there's one thing that I have had to learn the hard way over and over and over again, it's that I am not God. Sometimes, time and history reveal things that God has known all along, and sometimes they don't. But too often, in our haste to judge those over us, And and when we are absolutely sure that they are King Saul, we actually run the risk of taking on that lineage ourselves. Of becoming just like King Saul because our cause is just and right. Even though we might swear up and down that we are like King David. Does that make sense? This is David's formation as king. It was forged through waiting and remembering. But then there would come the corruption of power. The middle of David's story is complex, for sure. When he starts to reign as king, uh, and I don't want to just leave it there. I don't, I don't want to say it was complex, yada, 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 let's move on to the end. Uh, I want to say that there's a lot of, uh, when, when you read through the historical books of Scripture, I want you to know this, they record the history of scripture. They don't always say in here uh, that um, this is what you should do or this is what's right, they tell us what happened. And by telling us what happened and giving us the law and having time and history to be able to reflect on that, we can look and say, I think this was a good move. I don't think this was a good move. I think this was bad. We don't look and say, all right, see, David did that. It justifies it. We should all, we should all be able to take multiple wives. On that note, all right, uh, the Scripture, uh, the, the Bible, sometimes there's an attack against the Bible that says it condones polygamy. The Bible never condones poly- polygamy. It records polygamy, okay? And uh, the Bible does condone one man, one woman in a covenant marriage relationship. It absolutely does. Uh, what it does not condone is is polygamy, multiple wives. It was practiced universally. It's practiced throughout the Old Testament often. But if you pay attention, you will see it never goes well. And when you look at the life of David, who boy, does it not go well. We'll get there in a second. Saul eventually would be killed in battle. And when Saul was killed, did David celebrate? No he wept, and he called on the nation to weep. And David would ascend to power amidst an ongoing feud with the household of Saul, some of his sons. But even there, David consistently refused to go after anyone from Saul's household. Saul's sons actually were eventually killed by leaders in David's army who thought they were doing David a favor. We'll take him out. Surely the king will be happy. And their deeds did not go unpunished. David punished his servants, who would kill the sons of Saul. The tribes of Israel were eventually all, uh, and Judah were eventually all brought together. David won many military battles. He defeated the Philistines. He brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, back to the temple. Uh, a day on which he celebrated by dancing wildly and without clothing, um, and. Uh, It was, everything looked great. And David ascends to the kingship. He had multiple wives, but that was not enough. Uh, David being God's anointed as king does not mean that David was sinless. David was absolutely sinful. And after many military victories... Uh, in the kingdom of Israel at an all-time high, David took some time off when he was supposed to be fighting with his men uh, against the Ammonites. And one day, while taking a walk on his roof, he saw Bathsheba bathing, Bathsheba the wife of another man, and David absolutely, 100% abused his authority. He sent messengers to take Bathsheba and bring, him to her, uh, bring her to him, and she became with child And David tried to cover that up by having Uriah accidentally killed in the front of a military battle. David was sinful, and his leadership over Israel was humble. But nonetheless, we see that power corrupted David. Without question. And so the prophet Nathan came to the king and told him a story of a wealthy man abusing his power. That this wealthy man had plenty, but he took the lamb of a poor man. This, this poor man only had one possession, and it was this lamb. And the wealthy man did not want to spend any of his uh, lambs welcoming a visitor to town. So he took, he took the lamb of a poor man and sacrificed it, even though he had plenty. And David's anger in hearing this story was furious, and he pronounced extreme justice for this rich man who would do this. And Nathan's reply is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David saw and acknowledged his sin, and he grieved it deeply. But what was set in motion actually becomes pretty plain to see. David would have heartache and violence the rest of his life because of his sin. And yet, David's sin would be forgiven by God. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against Bathsheba. And ultimately David sinned against God, and God delivered the ultimate judgment. I think there's a lot of things to think about here, uh, and, and again, there's a lot of things to think about here, and we're not going to dive into all of them, any many of them today. However, something I want to see, I want us to see here is the tension between the all forgiving crowd and the all-atoning crowd, and how this plays out in the story of David. in our our own hearts, how it plays out. My biggest fears for followers of Jesus in our day, I'm gonna tell you, my biggest fears are honestly not behavior-related. My biggest fears for followers of Jesus today are heart-related, forgiveness-related. On one hand, we sometimes wave cheap forgiveness around like it's just out there. Right? We just need to forgive. We can excuse evil behavior. We can treat things like someone's life has not been absolutely horribly altered and wounded. We can fail to take serious the commands of God to do justly and to practice justice. And oftentimes, it's those with authority and the anointing that we're like, you know what, but, but what, they are, what they are producing, though the fruit, look at the fruit. So surely we can excuse some of the sin. We have podcasts, plenty of them, that talk about that. But then there's another side, when forgiveness becomes completely off the table. When in some, sense, in some cases, forgiveness is treated as evil in and of itself, and atonement becomes the only suitable sentence. And we run the great risk of living in a life filled of, with vengeance and not justice. And how easy it can become for us to place ourselves in the position of God, deeming that we know best what other people deserve and we get to be the judge. Power corrupted David. He repented. He was forgiven. And there were still consequences. And they were dire. The kingdom will always be impacted by the, by the sins of the king. Our only hope is a king without sin. And Israel would have to wait for that. So this moves us to our last snapshot in the life of David, the hope-filled grief of life. Uh, I mentioned earlier um, that the Old Testament talks about polygamous marriages. Everybody doing okay? I know this is like story. It's not tremendously interactive. Do we need to, like, stand up and stretch halftime? It's not halftime, I promise. It's the last, it's the last post, last uh, point here. All right. (laughs) I mentioned earlier polygamous marriages in the Old Testament, and they never go well. And David is is example 1A. Uh, One of David's sons, follow along here, all right? One of David's sons from one of his wives takes advantage of one of David's daughters from one of his other wives, and the brother of the girl from the other wife, uh, who is also one of David's sons, vows to take vengeance on David's son from another wife. Everybody there? All right. David does all he can to reconcile a very dark situation. But Absalom, David's son, is filled with righteous indignation to take action against the king. Absalom is going to avenge his sister. And he kills his brother, literally from another mother, Um, Amnon and then Absalom flees was Absalom justified was he right in doing that the Bible doesn't tell us his brothers didn't like it his brothers came against him they wanted to kill him and what, Abnom, what Am, Amnon did was pure evil. There's no doubt. So, how would we counsel somebody like Absalom? What would he say if he came over to our house and, like, you'll never believe what happened? David is wrought with grief, and his brothers wanted to kill. David's other sons all wanted to kill Absalom, and David said no. No more blood from vengeance. And rather than banishing Absalom forever, David brings him back to Jerusalem. And eventually Absalom comes to the king and David kisses his son. Absalom is another young, handsome, good looking man, very persuasive. Apparently he has really good hair. Um, you only cut your hair like once a year back then. And Like when he cut his hair, it weighed like five pounds or something like that. I'm going to assume that means he had really flowing locks. Uh, He was a good looking dude. Very persuasive. He had a vision for what God's kingdom should be. He had a vision. He could see the cracks forming in the kingdom of Israel. But Absalom had a vision and he was passionate about what should be in the kingdom of Israel. And following his encounter with David, Absalom begins to cast a compelling vision to other people. 2 Samuel 15, starting in verse 1. After his meeting with David, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment... Absalom would call to him and say, "'From what city are you?' And when they would say, "'Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel,' and Absalom would say to him, "'See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you.' And then he would say, "'Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice.'" And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. David knew that the heart of Absalom was turned against him. But David never hated Absalom. He never punished him. He didn't banish him. He welcomes him with a kiss. Absalom would conspire against David. He would turn actually some of David's closest friends against him. David had opportunity again to take vengeance, but he didn't. He prayed that the words of his former counselor and very close friend who would betray him that his words would become foolish. He left it in God's hands, and then he fled the city. Absalom had both vision and vengeance on his heart, and he was well on his way to becoming a king in the order of King Saul. David's life was bookended with grief. He was softened and trained under the harsh rule of King Saul, And in his older life, he was being chased by the young ambition of Absalom. One of my uh, favorite books that I try to read on a yearly basis is a book by a guy named Gene Edwards. It's called The Tale of Three Kings. And he writes the story of David uh, as a play. Um, And it's incredibly easy to read, uh, and I would highly commend it. His words about Absalom echo in my mind often when I see the temptation that comes along with, take your pick, cries for righteousness or cries for justice in our day. Absalom, he says, he is both sincere and ambitious, a contradiction perhaps, but true nonetheless. He probably means some of what he says, but his ambition will continue to uh, But his ambition will continue long after he discovers his inability to do any of the things that he promises. Listen to this. Righting the wrongs always becomes secondary to the ascent to power. Friends, we are all tempted in our day toward righteous anger. And we need to be very careful and we need to be very aware. The prospect of becoming what we despise is a lesson taught constantly throughout history in every generation. Believing in and fully trusting a God who is the ultimate judge will give us pause but it also gives us assurance there is a judgment greater than this world by a judge who is more fit than you or I. Absalom would ride out to war against David's men, and while fleeing from them on his mule, take this in, Absalom's mule runs through a thicket of bushes, and his head gets wedged in a tree. Like, I don't know how that happens. I would call that divine judgment. Because there are no, not a whole lot of people in history that have died with their head wedged in a tree after riding a horse like I, that I know of. Absalom spread the dreams of what he believed the kingdom should be. But to do this, he needed and courted the people's cooperation But the question that we often fail to ask, what do we do with people when people have great and attainable, uh, when people have a great and unattainable vision, what do you do when the people stop cooperating? To what extent do you go? I think it's interesting that David is held in such high esteem in history. His entire life is surrounded by people telling him that he is justified to take vengeance. His entire life, David's entire life, the beginning and the end, is surrounded by neighbors and friends saying, you dump that guy. You do whatever you have to take. You you go be free and forget them. And they deserve what they get. And internally... David refuses. And again, I don't know that we would see him as a good leader. It's interesting to me that we do. He doesn't seem to be the hero that we would often hold up in our day. And David, upon hearing the death of another one of his enemies, his son, another one out to kill him, 2 Samuel 18, the king was deeply moved, And went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son. Absalom, my son. Oh, that it would have been me who died instead of you. The longer we're alive, I'm 48. Only 48, but I'm 48. The longer we're alive, I believe, the more we are exposed to the grief of this world. We just are. We can fill ourselves and those around us with lofty, completely unrealistic visions like Absalom does. We do this when we're young. We're idealistic. This, this is what will save the world. This is what will change the world. Naive promises of a utopian culture built on either Christian nationalism or the inclusive progressivism where it's always the other people that are the problem we just need to get rid of them and then that's one way we can take we can just check out we can numb ourselves we can be indifferent be like you know what I'm just going to be out for me personal happiness that will run its course Or we can just give in to despair. Or, if we do believe, truly believe that this is not it, if we do believe that there is a God of both justice and mercy, forgiveness and atonement, then we can actually embrace the grief of this world and as Jesus himself promises in the Beatitudes, we can mourn, and be comforted by the God of the universe. We can acknowledge the grief of life, but we can do it with hope. That there is a truer and better king who will exercise perfect justice, who will judge the hearts of man, who is also filled with grace and mercy. There is a king who did not require the life of his enemies, but gave his own life. There is a king from the line of David who did not sin against God but lifted up the heads of the poor in spirit. There is a king who is already reigning but the full effect of his kingdom is not yet fully realized on earth. And when will it come? When will it fully be here? I don't know. If I did, I'd write a book. but we do know that he has already come in time and history and he has promised to return so we have confidence that he will come again and that it's not given to us to make our own history but rather to be aware of our own ambitions and to trust and wait and remember The only assignment I have for this week, if you feel that pit, that longing, to see how many things in your life, I'm not telling you to not be responsible, but how many things in your life do we need to just wait and remember? To sit in the presence of Jesus, if anything, this week, find a time where you are bored. And don't do anything to like make it go away. Just have to sit and wait. Cool? All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus, that, um, man, so many things. You didn't just say, you. You're not telling us to believe in something we have not seen act in time and history. You're not telling us to close our, our, our eyes and make believe it's true. You're not spinning fairy tales that are beyond comprehension. You made yourself known in time and history. And that's the confidence we have. And so when we go through this season that does involve waiting and it does involve lamenting and it does involve just long-suffering, that we're not doing this without hope. Um, So I pray uh, for those who mourn that they would be comforted. For those who are lonely that though we may feel alone we are not. You are present. For those who are discouraged that there is hope. And For those who this is just the most joyful time of the year, how much more do we have to anticipate and look forward to with your coming? You are all these things and and so much more. So I pray your blessing over our minds and our hearts this week as we continue to walk through this season of Advent. Waiting for your return. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.